all of us understand that it is our job here in this earth to go and make disciples of all nations. Because of the COVID lockdowns, some of the missionaries that I know are stuck, meaning they have to come back to the United States and they aren't able to go back to their flock. Um, so it's like shelter in place in another country is way more difficult than what we have to experience. And it's something that I think was really convicting because I hope that as we move away from this, or at least there's more ways of managing COVID that when things get easier, when, when things are opening up, that we won't take advantage of things that we used to have, the things that we weren't able to enjoy in the year, missions and evangelism being one of them. This message of salvation doesn't begin during the time of Christ. In fact, it goes all the way back to the garden. God promised a way for man to be restored and redeemed. God's redemptive plan has shown throughout history, and unlike COVID, the gospel will not be snuffed out or be done away with. There won't be a vaccine for it because the gospel will continue to spread long after COVID or even our lives come to an end. It will continue until every knee bows down to the Lord. And my hope with this message and this little tiny psalm is that you'll it'll take root in your own heart and that you'll spread the gospel of Jesus Christ with all those around you. These are all signs. There are these signs around the church. Some of you guys have uh, noticed when you came in, there's a sign on like some of the, the, the restrooms and the hand sanitizers that said, spread the gospel, not germs. And I think that's funny because, uh, yeah, we should be spreading the gospel. And it's just, you know, clever. I don't even think that sign was made when, with COVID in mind. It was made way before that. But it's awkwardly apropos. Okay, so there was some feedback. I thought Christ returned right there. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but anyways, I hope this message will compel us to not take missions and evangelism for granted. My hope is that when you see and we will go through this psalm, that you will want to go and spread the gospel, that the gospel will latch onto other people's hearts so that it will change them into a dead heart, to a beating heart, and that their lives will be changed for Christ. The psalm serves as an epilogue of sorts to Psalm 111, Psalm 116. In fact, this is the shortest psalm in the entire book of Psalms. And not only that, this is the shortest chapter in the Bible. And by God's providence, this chapter is in the very center of the Bible. It is, you know, if you divide up, there's like a thousand something chapters, you divide, divide right in the middle, you get this chapter. I once heard a sermon on this passage, and the pastor was saying, that if, if you take the Bible, you find the middle is Psalm 117. It, it is as if God has designed that the center core of the Bible is missions. And I think that sounded really cool. But in reality, we understand that the Bible was not arranged this way. This is just the English Bible's version. The original Old Testament, it was not arranged in this way. But nonetheless, this is important for us to understand that we do need to go and share the gospel with those that are lost. This is one of those little cool trivia things you need to know if you want to you know, be a Bible nerd. But one last little tidbit here in the NASB, the New American Standard. This verse is, or this chapter is the only chapter that you can actually put completely on Twitter. You can actually tweet every single letter and it could be a chapter on your tweet. Commentators often argue about when the psalm was written. And I hold to the view that this is written during post-exilic times. I'll explain a little bit more on that, but just to get your mind of what I mean by post-exilic, this is around the time of Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And this is a time when Israel was to 
was able to return back to the land and to repair the walls under the, under the reign of a Persian king. And the fact that God was faithful to them, despite the fact that they were in sin. God said that if you live instead of you give yourself over to all the idols in the world, he will remove Israel from the land. That's exactly what happened. But in that exile, there was a seven-year, 70-year prophecy that after 70 years, they will be brought back into the land. And that's what King Cyrus did. He allowed the Jews to return back to the promised land. Psalmists here, I believe, understand God's grace to God's people and God's faithfulness to his people. Why does knowing when this written, why does it matter? Because God's people are called to be theologians and God's people need to know God and God's people want, to, uh, want other people to know God as well. Even though this is the shortest Psalm, this is a message on why people need to go tell people about God, no matter how bad your life is or how great uh, your, or, or how bad or great your life is. Your life is signed with one singular purpose and that is to go and make other people worshipers of Christ. Your job is to make disciples of all nations. Just like this verse, a church, a true church is actually very small, but it can make a tremendous impact in the world. This is what this verse and what the church share in common. We want to declare God's faithfulness and goodness to the world. The theme of this chapter is worship and worship is ascribed to God. And what it means, worship is to describe worth to God and, and, and that what he deserves, this is what he deserves. That's why we say things about him. It's to describe the good things to the Lord. It's to give honor to the Lord because he deserves all honor. God's mission must be our mission as well. We want to point people to him. Notice in verse one, praise the Lord, all nations. This word, praise the Lord, this little phrase here, it's often used in two ways in our culture. One of them is a little hashtag PTL. Sometimes there's a little, it'll be this little emoji hand. It's actually like, a, I think a high five, but people think it's a prayer one. And the other way that people use this phrase, praise the Lord, is actually hallelujah, um, which is, you know, people use it, but they don't actually realize that they're saying praising the Lord. And it's like even not only that, but they're using the covenant name, the praising Yahweh in particular. This word praise means to shine forth, to highlight God's worth. Praise means to boast in the Lord, to, to tell others about God's mighty deeds. And this is speaking and declaring of God's faithfulness to you. This is a psalm that's designed to speak of who God is and to give him glory that he deserves. The psalms can praise God because he knows God through his word. Obviously, the writer could not um, have been a witness of everything and of God's faithfulness. He, there's no one that lives that long. Um, so he must have been able to know God through his word. He's read it, he studied it, and he concluded that God is indeed faithful. He read the scriptures. He sees how God is faithful and he continues to be faithful in the life of the psalmist. And it goes all the way down in history, which means that we can trust in the God of scripture. The psalmist knows God and he is able to praise God. Could this be said about you? Oftentimes people who struggle with their faith, they struggle because they have forgotten what God has done in their life and are blindsided to what God is currently doing in their life. They aren't familiar with God's word, so they have nothing to praise God with. And they aren't thankful to God in the present circumstance, so you don't praise him in the moment. Some of you have a hard time worshiping God because you, can, you fail to recall God's faithfulness in your life. You neglect 
or you neglect to see God's faithfulness in your present circumstance. We can't expect to praise God if we do not know who God is. And the only way that we know him truly is through his word. Notice that the object of the psalmist praise, praise the Lord. This is the, in, in our Bibles, our English Bible, the Lord, and the Lord is all caps. This is actually in Hebrew, Yahweh, the writer of the psalm is using the covenant name of God. He's isolating Yahweh as the only true God. He's not saying praise all these other pagan gods, but he's saying praise the God of Israel. He wrote this with an intention to, so that no one can have doubt on who he's, who he's praying to and praising. Psalms is speaking of the one true God, the God of Abraham and Jacob. Recently, the Pope went to the Middle East to try to meet with different religious leaders. Uh, he tried to unify all the quote-unquote religions of, of Abraham, and that's Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, or, or Roman Catholicism. The reason why he was trying to do that is because he said, oh, we're all the same religion. He tried to put them all together. The Pope's desire at, on this little trip is to unify them, to make sure that, you know, we're all worshiping the same thing. We all worship the same God. They all come from the line of Abraham. Why can't we just get along? But that is not the God, the true God that we all worship. Even if other cults and religion claim to worship the God of Abraham, they are actually worshiping a lie. They're, all, they're actually worshiping the devil. All other religion may even use the same names and characters from the Bible, but all of these are just false copies of them. The Adam of Mormonism is false. The Abraham of Islam is false. Even the Jesus of Jehovah Witness is not true. Only the Adam in the Bible, only the Abraham in the Bible, and only Jesus of the Bible are the true characters and are real. But every other book, they're worshiping a false God. Our God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is the one true God. Do you believe that? In your own heart of hearts, are you only a Christian and do you only believe in Christianity because maybe your family believes in Christianity? Or do you truly love God? from a pure heart? Do you believe that every word that is in the Bible as an errant and that it reveals the nature of our God? Do you believe that the God of the Bible is real or is it just some text just like any other religious book? Not only do you believe it, but are you willing to declare it? When you try to evangelize, you make assertions that there is no salvation under any name except for the God of the Bible. This is a very offensive thing to say to someone in our, in our modern day. To tell someone to go and worship one God is politically incorrect, but it's biblically correct. When you tell people that you are a follower of God, do they think that you're following a God in a general sense, like you're just a spiritual person? Or do they know that you follow Jesus Christ? Do they know that you're devoted to God? Or do you come across as someone just spiritual or religious? You tell people that you're a Christian, do they get the sense that you're the kind of Christian that is not accepting of all kind of lifestyles? Or are you with them you know, on the right side of history? Do you believe that the God of the Bible is the one and only true God? It all comes down to this. Is God worthy of your personal worship? If God doesn't matter to you, then telling others to worship God will not be a priority in your own life. There is a connection between what you tell others and what you love most. Scripture warns us that what, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you love most, you're going to talk about it. And that's going to be very evident to those around you. 
in this short intro of this verse, it's this, this is a call for Christians and believers to be evangelists. This is our mission here to bring people to worship him. There's a famous quote by John Piper um, in his book, Let the, Let the Nations Be Glad, is this. He writes, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. I'm going to read that again. Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. All of us are here with a, specific, with a particular purpose, and our goal is to bring other people to know the one true God. You are called to invite people, not just to our Bible studies or to our church or even to the live stream. It needs to go beyond that. We are a people of light called by the God who is like to tell worshipers of darkness that are living in darkness to come out of darkness and into the light. Evangelism is why we are still here. As Christians, we are not here for any other, anything else except to draw people to Christ, to represent him. Our job is to go and tell others about Jesus so that they can go and praise the Lord themselves. Worshiping God is our greatest priority, and we want non-believers to be worshipers with us. Not because we think that life is going to be better if they, when they profess to be Christians, because we know that isn't always true. Not because we think being a Christian will satisfy their, their material lust, because we know that isn't going to happen. And we want people to come to Saving Faith, not because we want them to join our little social club, but we want people to join us because we want them to worship the Lord with us. He is the one true God, worthy of all praise. Notice the target audience. The Psalms write, praise the Lord, all nations, all nations. Usually some of the Psalms are written directly only to the covenant people of God. But in this case, the psalmist is commanding everyone all over the world to praise God. This is an imperative. It is a command for people to respond correctly to the grace and goodness of our God. Notice, continue, all nations, laud him, all peoples, laud him. This is not a word that we usually use in our modern context. Maybe we might, some translation uses the word extol. The word extol or laud means to give praise or to uh, praise an object or a person. Some of you have hobbies that are strange to others, but you guys have hobbies, and, and the evidence of that is how you talk about it. You, you, some, some of us, I remember when I first came here, I was introduced to this thing called star bread. It was like some Bay Area thing. Um, and I'm from the Bay Area, so I've never heard of star bread before. But what star bread really is, is first of all, it's not a shape of a star or anything like that. It's just this little roll of sugar, bread, and butter. It's just, it's, it's, that's all it is. It's nothing that unique. It does taste good because of how fatty it is. But, you know, I can tell that this person that introduces me really loves this food. He's pretty passionate about star bread. And whatever you like, whatever you're into, you're going to tell other people about it. Oh, you need to go watch this film or you need to listen to this song. Whatever assertion, your, whatever assertion, positive assertion that you put in your hobby is you believe that this is worth your time, money and energy. It is a sign of your devotion and, and affections. And when you do that, you're extolling your hobby. You know, some of the married people here, we understand when a spouse extols another as a way of showing adoration and appreciation to their significant other. If a husband, for example, chooses to never say anything that shows love for their spouse or to never extol their wife in any ways or by giving them praise and affirmation, that is a formula for disaster 
a sure way of sleeping on the couch. To extol something or someone is to speak highly of it. Do you speak highly or sing about the things of God this way? The way that you talk about your hobbies, are you on fire for the things of the Lord the way that you are the things of the world? This is actually a command from the Psalms that those that are outside um, of the church or outside of the covenant people, now he's hoping that they'll be brought into a covenant relationship with God so they can sing with a worshipful heart. When people talk about God, both in the positive or negative, what are your reactions? You hear someone extol God's faithfulness and goodness. Does that resonate with you? When someone tells you to trust God because he's faithful, do you get that? Do you understand what that means? Do you agree with, that, with those type of assertions? Does it resonate in your heart? Or, or is it the opposite? When someone's, what about the opposite? When someone speaks negatively about the Lord, do you get offended by it? Do you defend God's name by extolling his faithfulness and goodness as those who think that God is not worthy? Whether you affirm or extol the Lord or defend him, it's a reflection of where your heart truly is. Another interesting about this word of extol is that the only time this is really used actually in the Aramaic, uh, it's an Aramaic word, which is why I think it's post-exilic. Because that's the time when they're not in Israel or they're entering back into Israel. So they have mixed languages. This Aramaic word is used, um, this word extol is used in the Aramaic way. This is a poetic device to complement the word praise. Praise is in the Hebrew. The word extol here or laud is in the Aramaic. And it's to say that both Jews and Gentiles need to praise and worship God. This is another confirmation that from the very beginning, God's plan involves everyone that believes in him. Genesis 12, verse 3, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He tells him that through your line, the whole world will come to know him. God is not intrigued by your skin color because that's not what's most important about you. The most important thing about what God wants from you is devotion and worship to him because he is worthy. This is a universal appeal for people all over the world to go and praise God. In the New Testament, Paul sums up this verse in Romans chapter 15, verse 11. Romans chapter 15, verse 11 reads, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. This chapter here, it's about, or this, this whole chapter and Romans speaks about how the Lord's kingdom involves both Jews and Gentiles. It goes beyond just the nation of Israel. It goes beyond the Middle East. It's a call for people all over the world to come and worship him. At the turn of the 20th century, there was a movement that were uh, called the, the student volunteer movement. What made this group very unique is that they were primarily college students. They were young people. They had this desire to go and study very hard so that they could go to places all over the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ. These were college students that wanted to evangelize people all over the world. These individuals were not sent by a mission organization or, so, or led by some sort of famous pastor. It was just a group of faithful college and career students, and they had this goal in mind to use the talents that God has given them for his glory. And I wonder if this is your desire, if that's the desire of your own heart. Do you want people to know God? Do you want other people to sing praises to him? Is this your passion to win people to Christ? Is this your greatest 
desire. I know a lot of us have many different things that we love to do and we have many hobbies that we love and we, there are things that we want to buy, there's things that we want to go, places that we want to go to. Those things may seem neutral, but the love you have for those things should look like apathy compared to what you have in Christ in terms of winning people to Christ. The things of this world should look like apathy compared to your desire and your passion to win people to Jesus Christ has always been part of God's divine plan to rescue the world from their own doom. We as Christians being saved today was being was part of God's divine rescue plan. God using us to tell others is part of God's divine rescue plan. We must not take for granted the privilege it is to be called by God and then be, to be used by God to tell others of God. Now, I'm not speaking over you. I know I'm literally on a pole behind a stage for you here, but I'm not speaking to you as if I think evangelism is easy. I understand that evangelism is hard. Even though I've done a lot of evangelism in my life, it is never easy. If I were to be honest, it's not the, the, the reason why it's hard for me personally is because there's always that hint of fear of man. Right? We, we, we want approval from the world. Evangelism isn't easy. Even the most skilled evangelism can attest to the difficulties of evangelism. Nobody likes to get into tense conversation. Nobody likes to be... He likes to tell a loved one that they're going to go to hell if they don't repent. Nobody likes to not be liked. It's not natural for us to evangelize from a worldly sense because the message that we're proclaiming to the world seems foolish to them. We're telling people to worship a Jewish man that, came, that, that claims to be God coming into the world who fulfilled the law that, the, fulfilled the law that he made um, and he, he made it and he fulfilled it perfectly and died on the cross and rose three days later. And not only that, but that he's gonna come back one day from a cloud. This sounds super bizarre to the world. This is not something you would tell to normal people, but this is how God expects us to go, to tell this, this message of the gospel. It's good to us, but to the world, it makes no sense. We do evangelism because we desire others to know God more than their own comforts, more than our own comforts. We want to echo Paul in Romans and the way the psalm is here in the Psalm 117 as well. We want others to praise and worship God. We don't ever want, we don't ever want to see people die without Christ. Winning souls must be our focus in this life. If you are a college student, you are evangelist first and, and then a student second. You work at a coffee house. You are an evangelist first before you're a barista. If you're working in a tech company, you're an evangelist first, then a tech nerd second. We are all Christians, and by default, we are also all evangelists. We have to tell people about Christ because that is why Christ left us here. This is our mission. The psalmist told, the psalmist here tells that even non-believers he's, he's calling non-believers to worship him to worship god now whether or not these non-believers do it or not that's not the psalmist's problem he is just going out and declaring god's goodness and faithfulness to the world and this is the same for us as well you're to tell non-believers to go and worship god whether they listen or not that is not your responsibility your responsibility and my responsibility is go and tell people the good news that is in Jesus Christ. Notice this, this is all people. The psalmist wrote this psalm as a call for faithfulness so that the world would know their God. And this includes both the Jews and the Gentiles. 
Now, what is sad when we read through the totality of scripture is that by the time, not even by the time of Jesus, even before that, we, we went through Jonah once in, in our Sunday worship. Remember, Jonah already had this animosity towards those that are not Jewish. He hated the Ninevites. But by the time when Jesus' time, the Jews didn't care about the psalm anymore. They, they, they knew of the psalm. They knew that God wanted the nations to come to him. But they had such hatred towards the Gentiles that they didn't want them to know Yahweh. They didn't want them to know God. That is easy for us to criticize the Jews or people like Jonah and their lack of faithfulness. But we have to understand we fall under the same category as well. We fall under the same sin. Here's a question you want to ask yourself. Here's a question you can, you can ask yourself. Who was the last person you shared the gospel with and when was that? Who was the last person in the last year that you shared the gospel with? Now, if you struggle to remember who and when, then that means you've forgotten your job here on earth as an evangelist. It may be harder now with restrictions, but I wonder if this is just a convenient excuse for us to be unfaithful. Do you prize Jesus enough to be able to tell others about Jesus? Look at verse 2, for his loving kindness is great towards us. Loving kindness is not an English word. If you type it in your Google word, there will be this little red squiggly line under it. It's a made-up word because it's a hard word to kind of grasp. And it's a hard concept to just put in one word. So that's why the NASB translated as loving kindness. Other English translation uses the word steadfast love or unfailing love or loyal love or covenant love. Now, however you look at it, the point is, is that God is super, super, super abundant in his love and his kindness towards you. God is great in his kindness towards all of us. That's what it says here, towards us. God showed his magnificent love and kindness towards the psalmist and towards us. His love is directed towards us. This is another reason why I believe he wrote this in a, non, in a post-exilic time, because the psalmist is aware of, lo- of God's loving kindness or his covenant love towards his people. He sees God's faithfulness towards them. God's love is towards us as well. And I, and I wonder if that still amazes you. Knowing that God loves you, does that make you happy? Does that make you joyful? Just knowing that the God of the universe is mindful of you and I. God chooses to reveal himself through scripture and open our hearts and minds to know him. God saved us because God's truth is everlasting. He said that he will provide a way for people to get saved all the way back in Genesis. And scripture shows us how. Notice in the middle of verse 2. And the truth of Yahweh is everlasting. Truth is interesting because in the NASB it translates as truth. But the word is actually faithfulness. In a way, God is true because he is faithful. And he is faithful because he is true. It is God's truth that is everlasting because God is eternal. This is why he is also faithful because he doesn't end. God doesn't change. He is always faithful for all eternity. Unlike us, the change because we mature or certain things that we realize looking back in our life, like, oh, we're such an idiot uh, or I'm so immature back then, which impacts our thoughts that we do in the moments. That isn't what God does. God's truth doesn't change. I wonder if you saw the news last week about how the royals were interview- were being interviewed by Oprah, and Oprah is one of the. She is a. She's very 
masterful in the ways that she can get information from people. I often wonder why the government don't just don't invite her to do interrogating because she's good at just drawing information out from people. Oprah is known for that for ability to make people relax so that they can reveal oftentimes some shocking revelation about their life, and she's a master of it. But if you listen to this whole interview that she did with those royals, you'll notice that she often tells people to tell your truth, and she will always affirm their truth. And she inadvertently popularized this idea that everyone's truth is their truth. Now, obviously, that doesn't work in real life. One's, one person's truth doesn't make it true in reality. If I was an employer and I employed someone, I gave him a check for his, for his work, and he decides to go to the bank and cash this check, my employee can't demand more money just because his truth tells him that there should be more zeros at the end of this check. He can't demand that just because it is, it is his truth, because his truth doesn't impact reality no matter how much he thinks, uh, no matter how much he thinks so. Truth is truth. And the only truth that matters is God's truth. God, however, is true because everything he is is true. God is true to himself, true to his character, true to his promises, and therefore we will have absolute certainty on all that God is doing in our life and what he will do in the future. Truth is always associated with God's character. Truth is, is, is not outside of God. God is true. There is nothing about God that is not true. Psalm 119 verse 142 tells us that the sum of his words is true. All of what God has to say is true. Truth is is tied to God's loving kindness. Jesus described himself as truth in John 14. Jesus said himself that everyone will pass away, but not a small jot or tittle will pass away all of God's word. Do you realize what that means? You realize that, that, that when God said, when Jesus said that not one jot or tittle, he's referring to the smallest letter in Hebrew. The smallest uh, letter in Hebrew, it's, it's the letter Yod. It looks like a, a, a comma hanging in the air, which I know some of you are thinking, isn't a comma hanging in the air, an apostrophe? Yes, it is an apostrophe. It looks like that. And Jesus is saying that that small little yod is not going to pass away. And just a way to illustrate for us to understand, just look at your Bible. Look closely, like literally look down at your Bible right now, and you'll notice at the bottom of each letter, there's these little lines that go across it. It is especially evident on letters like the L, M, or N. If you look very closely, you'll see these little dashes there. And the reason why these dashes are there is so that your eyes can glide across the page. It's designed so that your eyes can move naturally through one letter to the next and from one sentence to the next. If Jesus was using an English Bible, he'll say that that small little dash will not perish, that every, every letter of the law will be fulfilled. How is that possible? It is because of because that faithfulness, that truthfulness about our God, is why the was why the psalmist praises Him. God is always true to His character, and His faithfulness is everlasting. You notice the very last phrase in Psalm one seventeen. I read it as Hallelujah, and the side of your Bibles will say the same thing. In fact, these psalms these psalms here are known as the Hallel Psalms, and that's why we say Hallelujah. The results of understanding God's faithfulness and great love towards us is that we praise him. This isn't just the psalmist's way of trying to get believers to go and worship him, or worship God, but it is true. 
God, the psalmist here, or the Lord working through the psalms, commands people to praise him. Non-believers are called to believe and praise. Charles Spurgeon put it right this way. We can all join in this grateful acknowledgement and in the praise which is therefore due. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. He has, keep, he has kept his covenant promise that in the seed of Abraham, all nations of the earth be blessed. And he will eternally keep every single promise of that covenant to all those who put their trust in him. This should be a cause of constant and grateful praise. Wherefore, the psalmist conclude as it began with another hallelujah. Praise ye Yahweh. We praise God now here on earth and we will continue to praise him in all of eternity because we will learn new things. We'll understand his truth more. We'll understand his love more. Therefore, we'll praise him for all of eternity. It'll be better by then because it'll be the removal of sin in our life. We'll not be distracted. We'll be able to praise him wholeheartedly and perfectly. And we want others to join us as well. We want others to join us in this praise and all of glory. We want to go tell people to know Jesus so that we can so that we can all worship him and praise him for his goodness and loving kindness towards us. We hope that God will raise up some of you one day to become event to become missionaries and to go and win people to Christ. But even before you're sent out to other parts in the world, what I really hope for is that you invite people into the heavenly kingdoms here in the Bay Area. May God's love for you move you to share God's love to other people. Church history, something that I recommend all of us read um, because it gives us a glimpse of God's faithfulness and how he uses different people throughout time to fulfill that commission that he gives to the disciples and the apostles all the way back in Acts and the end of the Gospels. Jesus said that he'll always be with us when we share the gospel, that he will never leave us even until the end of the age. God will protect the church by drawing new people into the church. <clears throat> Christ's mission for us has global implication. Jesus tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations, starting in Jerusalem. And in Acts, we see it spread all out. Paul was uniquely called to minister to the Gentiles. He traveled extensively through the Roman Empire, through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and even possibly to Spain. He took the gospel wherever he went. Peter left Jerusalem and then went to Asia Minor and died in Rome. John, the apostle, spent the last 30 years of his life in Asia Minor teaching and strengthening the church there. And, and church history tells us that Thomas took the gospel to India. And why do we believe that? Because there's, a, there's still a church today named the Maritoma Church, which traces his lineage back all the way to Thomas. Bartholomew went to Armenia. Mark went to Egypt. Matthew went to Ethiopia. James went to Syria. And through other faithful men, the gospel spread throughout the world. It went beyond Israel, went to South Africa and Egypt and Sudan. It went to, to the east, to modern-day Iraq, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan. And we know from even archaeological dig that they found that even the gospel made it to China, at least in the 7th century, around the, the Tang Dynasty, because possibly earlier. The gospel went up to Europe, and Christians then we're motivated to go and tell other people about the world. We understand, and we know there's through history that eventually when we moved from Europe to America, 
And David Brainerd was actually one of the first people to go and witness to the Native Americans. John Ed, John, uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, he would be the, the writer, the he would write a biography on David Brainerd and his faith, most of which then drove him to go and make disciples in the, to, in, to people in, in America, the Native Americans. William Carey would read that biography by Edwards of David Brainerd. He was inspired to take the gospel to places that I haven't heard. And David Brainerd ended up going to a place in Burma. Hudson Taylor would then go be inspired by that and go and share the gospel back to China again. And these are just only, these are just a few names, just to name a few. In fact, these people here are just recorded ones because we know that the God has probably raised up individuals that's not recorded into his, in history. When God, when people say that God can't be loving because there are people in the world that have not heard the gospel. That's a, that's a presumptuous statement. They assume that they know and gone to every part of the world and, and concluded that the gospel was never here. But they don't know that. But we know that our God is always raising the people and always sending people to all over the world. And I know that one day in glory, we will meet fellow brothers and sisters that went to different places that we've never even heard of. We never even think about, oh, the gospel went there at some point. We will praise the Lord for his faithfulness, that the gospel impacted individuals and they went out out of obedience and faith to submit and to make disciples of all nations. Many of these faithful individuals gave up the comforts to go and win people to Christ. Why is that? Because they have the same heart as the psalmist here in Psalm 117. And I hope that this, and I hope that the, that as you know this psalm, as you understand this text, that your heart will be will have this evangelistic zeal to win people to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word, your faithfulness, your loving kindness towards us. We're thankful for your truth, how it is everlasting, because you are everlasting. But we confess that we are not always as obedient as we should in the area of evangelism. We confess that we are often too fearful of consequences of those interactions. Lord, we want to be bold. We want to be faithful, especially in this time where it seems difficult to evangelize people because of social distancing, but we know the gospel will eventually be heard. May you give that the zeal in our hearts to not be afraid, whether it's our neighbors or loved ones or just strangers. May you make those interactions known to us. May we be aware of our circumstances and situations and hopes to draw people to you. Lord, we love you. We ask for your grace to love you more each and every single day. Thank you in your son's name. Amen. Some quick announcements uh, for the people online, uh, and even I guess people here too. Um, so we are currently meeting here, and our goal is to eventually to kind of increase the numbers. Right now, there's about like 11 people in the room, and this room could fit about 30 something. But just be patient. Eventually, we're going to try to get there. We're just trying to work out all the kinks, as you as you can see, um, even things like sound. I heard rumblings here and there, and I thought like, okay, we're, you know, I thought this was it multiple times. It'd be cool to kind of end my life. <laughs> preaching God's word. Um, but yeah, there's some technical things that we're trying to figure out too and just you know, cleaning up afterwards and going in and out. Um, so just be patient. Uh, next week, we're going to do this again. 
Um, we're going to try to invite more people. Well, we're going to try to invite the same amount of people. But as we get better at it, we'll increase more people. And, um, and just FYI as well, that this is just for joint heirs, meaning like the number cap that we have is only for us. It's not for you know, other Bible studies, other fellowship groups, or even church on Sunday or Saturday um, a recording thing. It's uh, that one is like, I think 30 something people. Um, but for us, it's just because we, we have to manage everything. I, I wanted to keep it small for now just so that we can understand the procedures and you know not get ourselves infected. Um, 